Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vagra Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. America, Australia, and Britain will partner to develop nuclear attack submarines for Canberra that has decided to cancel a nearly 90 billion Australian dollar contract with France's naval group for a dozen conventional submarines. Australia made the move uh, in part to improve its own capabilities, but also send a deterrent signal to Beijing uh, after concluding that conventional submarines are not suited for the nature of the missions it's planning on executing in the future. Uh, That's a major step for a nation that's been anti-nuclear in the wake of British nuclear tests in the 1950s, including uh, Britain's first nuclear device uh, that contaminated vast chunks of the country. Paris and Beijing are furious uh, as EU leaders renew their call for strategic autonomy from an American administration that they claim is as America first as its predecessor. And some, even in the United Kingdom, are criticizing the deal for putting London crosswise with China, a major trading partner that will become ever more important, especially in the wake uh, of Brexit. North Korea, uh, surprise, surprise, is acting up with missile tests. Iran is sliding into economic chaos. This, as Washington makes clear, that whatever new nuclear deal is struck will have to be different than the one that President Trump scrapped. And the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley, is uh, again under fire for his role, uh, this time in calling his Chinese counterpart twice to reassure him that the United States wouldn't be attacking China in the wake of President Trump's election loss uh, and during the attacks on the Capitol. Uh, joining us today are Dr. Patrick Cronin, who leads the Asia Pacific Studies, uh, who leads Asia Pacific Studies at the Hudson Institute Think Tank. Michael Herson of American Defense International, one of Washington's top defense and aerospace uh, lobbying firms. Former Pentagon Europe Chief Jim Townsend, who is now with the Center for a New American Security, and former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dub Zakheim of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, one of uh, many of his affiliations. Everybody, thanks very much for joining us. And before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. And Finn Contieri, Marinette Marine sponsors uh, our naval coverage. And uh, a happy birthday, uh, our happy early birthday to the United States Air Force that celebrates uh, tomorrow, uh, just as the Air Force Association's annual Air Space Cyber Conference gets underway next week outside Washington, D.C., this time in person. And please stay tuned for our coverage of that, including our interviews uh, with Secretary Frank Kendall and other senior uh, leaders. Uh, also, check out our weekly Cavus Ships podcast with our contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and our uh, very own producer, Chris Cervello, who take a deep, deep dive weekly into naval issues. Uh, we're going to be, uh, I'm going to be joining him this week uh, as well to talk uh, about the submarine uh, deal. Uh, everybody, thanks again for joining us. Michael, uh, start us off. You're going to be joining us briefly because it's markup and it's extremely uh, busy uh, time, right? Amendments are now uh, going to be hitting the floor. Walk us through where we are right now. Uh, in Congress. And, you know, we've got reconciliation going on. We have a continuing resolution. We've discussed this for weeks and weeks, if not months, that we would be arriving at this point, right? Um, with each passing week, the financial situation for the country gets worse in terms of our borrowing power. We've heard from Janet Yellen on that. Uh, and uh, the Democratic caucus remains split on what to do and how to pay for, you know, obviously, uh, the, the big package they're doing. Walk us through where we are right now and the action we're going to see that's going to include uh, the House floor getting involved in the $25 billion uh, defense budget plus up as well. 
Okay, great. So um, the National Defense Authorization Act will be on the floor in the House uh, next week. Uh, the Rules Committee will meet on Monday uh, to review the over 800 amendments that have been filed uh, to the NDAA, which is one of the reasons I have to jump out early because I'm still going through these amendments and need to spend most of my day stopping many of them. Uh, but <laughs> the one amendment of note, as you alluded to, is an amendment offered by uh, Congresswoman uh, Barbara Lee, uh, Congressman Pocan, and uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez to reverse the uh, $25 billion uh, addition to defense spending. So I'm sure the Rules Committee uh, will let that come to a vote on the floor, and I'm sure that that amendment will be defeated. And in the end, I'm also fairly confident that the NDAA will pass uh, the House uh, with a strong bipartisan vote. Um, but you know, it'll be painful uh, to get there. It won't be until later next week. Now, in the meantime, the Rules Committee, uh, when I meet on Monday, will also be meeting on the continuing resolution. However, we haven't seen the continuing resolution yet, and it's not clear how long the CR will last for. There are two dates being floated, one December 3rd, one December 10th. And most people on the Hill think that we'll need another CR uh, even after that, that it'll be very difficult, if not impossible, for them to wrap up all appropriations uh, by, by the end of the year. So, um, but, and there's still a question, too, as to what will be included in the CR, whether they will add uh, debt ceiling and disaster relief, which seems what the Democrats plan to do now. And, you know, I think that there's it looks like there's a possibility the House could even vote on the CR as early as next week. And if they do, I think we're looking at a CR that does include debt ceiling and disaster aid because they're buying themselves time in case the CR does fail. Uh, to give them the chance to vote on another CR to try and avoid a shutdown before the end of the month. Because I think that the Republicans, especially in the Senate, are not going to support uh, a debt ceiling and they need to get to 60. Uh, and they don't. I think 46 senators have already come out saying uh, on the Republican side that they would oppose uh, raising the debt ceiling right now. So then that leaves us with uh, infrastructure. Uh, not much has happened uh, since we last spoke, except that the House uh, subcommittees did uh, meet their deadlines uh, by the skin of their teeth to get uh, their version of the bills marked up by September 15th. However, the Senate did not. Uh, the Senate is still working through their bills. And there still remains major differences on what's in these bills and how they can be paid for them. And I've had some interesting conversations this week, both with House Democratic leadership staff and with us, uh, a U.S. Senator who's a Democrat, uh, who both told me uh, what I've said on previous podcasts, that uh, Manchin and Cinema are saying what a lot of people are thinking. Right. They're out there saying they don't want to see three point five trillion. They're looking at a much more scaled down version of one to one point five trillion. And there's a lot of senators that are very grateful that they're willing to stick their neck out on the line. And the House understands and accepts that. And, and they're saying behind closed doors that the final package, if there is one and they believe there will be one, will be around one to one point five trillion. Uh, but the question still remains whether the House will be able to meet their deadline of voting on the bipartisan infrastructure package on September 27th, because there's no way that the larger package will be ready by then. So that remains to be seen. I, if, it, if they do vote on it and it doesn't pass, there still will be a chance, obviously, to bring it up again, because I do think there will be a lot of Democrats that will vote against the bipartisan package because the larger package hadn't passed yet. And the question is, even though it's a bipartisan package, will the, will the Republicans give them enough votes uh, to pass it? That's a big question. I know you've got to go. Um, it's probably too early to find out what the temperature is on the submarine vote. Obviously, Congress, uh, there is a, a consensus that Congress would have to pass legislation. Um, you know, my, my estimation is it's far easier for the U.S. to amend the U.S.-U.K. nuclear treaty that, that allows Britain to transfer the technology to the Australians, uh, which is a little bit earlier generation technology and preserves uh, our sort of cutting edge stuff. Not to say that the Australians cannot be trusted with that. 
Um, any sense on how that's playing and also uh, what's potentially next uh, for uh, Mark Milley? We're going to talk about that later in the show, but you won't be there in terms of what the temperature is, right? I mean, the, Demo- the Republican side has kind of gone off the chart in terms of, you know, demanding for his resignation and court-martial and what have you, whereas President Biden, the guy who ultimately decides this, has, has said um, that he has confidence in Mark Milley. Um, any, any sense on either of those before you go? Sure. So first on the Australian nuclear deal, I, look, I think uh, Congress is going to take a hard look at that. And I don't think that they're going to be in the mood to quickly rubber stamp that, you know, especially in an era where, unfortunately, you know, bipartisanship is um, you know, hanging on by a thread. So national security, I still think, is the last bastion of bipartisanship. So I think they might be able to come together on this, but I don't think this is going to be as easy as people think it will be. And then, you know, when it comes to Millie, you know, I think there's a lot of grandstanding on that, but I think you know when people start to look at the facts of the of the situation, what Millie was asking for, be part of the process. If you know the president had given an order to launch nuclear weapons, that's the way it works now. Anyway, he's supposed to be part of that process. Anyway, part of that right. consulting process. Now he can't step in and stop it, but what he really was asking for at the end of the day and reiterating was already what the process is. So I think a lot of people are out there screaming and yelling, not really understanding the facts. I think he's been an easy fall guy because of the, the, the differing that opinions that he and President Trump had had. Uh, and I also think that there's, I, I think that Millie feels this way, that this current administration, uh, and especially uh, Secretary Blinken in his testimony before the House Foreign Affairs Committee, is starting to throw uh, him, uh, Millie, under the bus as well when it comes to Afghanistan. So uh, I think he's taking fire from both sides, but a lot still remains to be seen. Michael, thanks so very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Hope you had a good fast and looking forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks a lot. Great. Thank you. Everybody, thanks uh, very much for your uh, patience with that. Patrick, I want to bring you uh, into uh, the the discussion. Obviously, uh, you know, the biggest headline of the week was uh, the administration's decision to work with Australia and the United Kingdom in order to strike uh, a deal in which, uh, you know, three of these five eyes partners would work together to field what analysts have long said. Australia uh, does need nuclear submarines in order to conduct uh, its mission, given its geographic location and the distance uh, it's got to travel uh, to get to where it needs to meaningfully do that. Um, however, uh, that also means canceling the current contract with France's uh, naval group uh, that was working really, really hard to develop a non-nuclear version of the country's capable nuclear attack submarine, a Barracuda class, um, for Canberra, in part because of uh, Canberra's anti-nuclear leaning that's been the case, uh, and also the Australian demand for 100% production uh, in-country, right? I mean, the new requirement, I think, is going to be 40%, uh, which is more reasonable at the time. The French uh, justifiably were concerned. Uh, I'm not lawyering for Naval Group. There was an enormous amount of Australian frustration reported that France was not transferring the technology uh, nor setting up domestic supply the way Australia wanted it to. On the other hand, France takes pride in being able to develop good systems that work and is very reluctant to outsource work to guys who are not qualified, a conversation I've had literally for three decades with uh, French uh, industrialists because they feel it would reflect negatively on their product ultimately. On the other hand, the way this decision was done, the day before uh, the EU was announcing its uh, strategic uh, the Pacific focus, and also with an ally and partner that is a Pacific power that's more that's increasingly important to what the United States wants to accomplish. We we gravely offended the French in the process. Talk to us about the deal, what it means, why it's beneficial, and what does it mean more broadly. And then Jim, I want to get your take uh, on the France and European angle and what that means. And then Dove, uh, your your sense on how this administration sort of 
you know, might be doing the right things, but the way it goes about doing them ends up kind of pissing everybody uh, off. In fairness, I did talk to somebody uh, at the White House yesterday who made the case, hey, look, the Australians came to us. They had a pressing need. It's not up to us to tell um, the French that they're out of it. Um, we weren't doing anything behind necessarily anybody's backs, but working with an ally and partner that, that wanted an outcome. Um, walk us through, Patrick. Start us off. Well, Vago, France remains a Pacific power and an essential ally in the long term in the Indo-Pacific, but they have every reason uh, for, for major grievance right now. And there's a lot of work to be done by Washington, Canberra and London uh, to bring the French back uh, into the fold. But this is more than a submarine deal, uh, as you suggested. Really, this is a strategic decision for the rest of the 21st century that Canberra has made and helped uh, to make with Washington and London. London clearly wants to be back, uh, is a major uh, power, and it sees itself uh, in the consequential Indo-Pacific now uh, for the long term, even though it's a much reduced naval and military power than it was in history. Um, the United States has been looking to operationalize its alliances and new mechanisms like the quadrilateral security dialogue that includes India and Japan. In fact, the four leaders coming to the White House uh, is another step forward. But how do you operationalize leadership among maritime democracies? Well, you do it in many lateral, smaller ways with you by, by solving practical problems, like how do you get a nuclear propulsion system to your ally, Australia? It doesn't just happen as a nuclear propulsion transfer. <laughs> Not only are there legal burdens and a new mutual assistance agreement to be hammered out among the three countries and bilaterally, but uh, there are much, much bigger strategic choices being made here. The United States wanting more basing in the region is looking very much to Australia in the long term. And that's more than just plussing up the, the sort of the rotational deployments in Darwin or sending new aircraft uh, there, but potentially uh, home porting ships uh, in Australia in the longer right. term, doing strategic anti-submarine warfare, um, not just with Australia, um, but with Japan and, and India in a, in a zone sort of defense kind of sense. It's creating also quantum and AI and other high technology uh, capabilities in Australia in the long term. That's something that Australia wants for its strategic autonomy. And it's something that somebody like uh, Deputy Secretary Kath Hicks has been writing about for years about confederated defense, about understanding we don't have all of the expertise. We have to work closely with our closest allies and the five eyes are indeed our closest allies, arguably, um, that we need to be sharing some technology. When Australia made the decision five years ago to reject the Japanese uh, sort of competition and other competition and choose the French submarine, a lot of people in the Australian Royal Australian Navy were not happy uh, because they wanted, they, didn't, they wanted to avoid the son of Collins problem that you start to put a propulsion system here and a weapon system made there together and you end up uh, with a, a, a suboptimal decision. Um, and so they wanted to avoid that. And then you alluded to the fact that in Adelaide, they've got the heavy lobbying campaign to, to make things indigenously and to build up their capacity. This deal among the three countries will allow the United States potentially to have propulsion technology transferred for only the second time, not just giving a reactor to the UK in 1958, but also um, now allowing Australia to have the jewels of the silent service, this nuclear submarine propulsion system as the UK, the United States and Australia fashion together a submarine design that can have long reach, can be stealthy, survivable, and, and really face the new strategic uh, landscape that they're looking at for the decades ahead. 
And this is being driven by um, Xi Jinping's China, right? I mean, make no mistake that what's made this possible, both the sea change politically here in the United States for the Biden administration to suddenly think that, yes, we have to make the big sort of concession here and, and give Australia what they really want, which is a nuclear capable submarine. Uh, and in exchange for that, we're going to give them a long-term agreement um, as well. And we're going to bring the UK into that to make this possible. But it's been China's actions that have been you know, frightening the region. And it's also been the concern about America slipping away, losing power and possibly retreating. And, and, and to anchor the United States in Australia, as Australia did back 70 years ago when they struck the ANZUS Treaty, the agreement there, the bargain there, the quid pro quo, was Australia was going to be on board with the San Francisco Peace Treaty, the Japan Peace Treaty, if you will, uh, and we were going to uh, have a, a long-term alliance. And now they've got both the UK, which was overshadowed by the United States, obviously, after World War II, and the United States as long-term allies in this Indo-Pacific in which China looms so very large. Um, I, um, I think everybody recognizes uh, that need. I mean, I think the big challenge is, and, and you know, I wrote a piece about this, saying I don't think it makes sense for Australia to have a unique eight-boat class. The United States Navy is busy enough delivering two Virginias a year and one Columbia. That's a top priority, and everybody in leadership has said that that has to remain uh, the top priority. The trouble is we don't have any industrial elasticity uh, w without derailing our own programs, right? You, you can't really easily add eight boats right. to this uh, without derailing it, which is why I think the astute class is likely the best solution in part because of the intimate relationship that Australia, uh, you know, the Royal Australian Navy has with the Royal Navy that still remains a certification uh, perisher. I mean, a number of, uh, you know, cultural ties that are really, really close between the, the two navies. And I should point out, that American officials are a little frustrated because U.S. Navy leaders put their finger on the uh, Barracuda scale, on the French scale, in part because France did have export experience. It was a bigger boat. Uh, you know, Japan did not have any experience in uh, exporting its submarine technology because it does come from a rather uh, in insular uh, insular system. Uh, Jim, let me bring you into this discussion. Um, you know, the, the, the trick, as you and I have discussed over the course of very many years, right, to solve one problem, you can't cause another problem. Uh, and, it's, and it's great to be in a rush and want to do things quickly, strike while an iron is hot. I think that, you know, um, you know, I've been in Washington long enough to know that this is a great way of changing the topic from Afghanistan when your secretary of state is being beaten up or any one of another domestic issues. And it shows, hey, look, allies and partners matter to us. That's good if you send a consistent message. It's really bad if you're telling Australia and Britain you matter and then kicking France uh, your oldest ally in the head in, in doing that, right? Then um, there is some debate about whether Paris was warned or not or should have seen this coming or not. Um, but the statements from French officials are pretty extraordinary. I mean, Jean-Yves uh, Le Drian, uh, not given to theatrics, you know, called this a, a stab in the back, uh, ultimately. Where are we? What do we need to do now um, and how does this play into the broader EU drive for strategic autonomy? Because the timing of it couldn't be worse. And there are more icebergs ahead for us, right? I mean, there are, there are serious by American concerns um, that uh, are likely to surface that will further exacerbate the relationship. Walk, walk us through where we are and where, where we need to be going in order to make this right. 
Well, Vago, I tell you, this this story has so many different levels to it, uh, and and a lot of us have been focusing on just what happened in terms of the business case here, the uh, the French Australian deal and the troubles that it had, et cetera, et cetera. And I think, um, and this was said earlier by Patrick, I think you can certainly focus on all of that, uh, which some of our listeners were probably interested in, but you've really got to pull your head out of that nuts and bolts you know, issue that started off into looking at these bigger implications. And I think Patrick did a great job of laying out um, the strategic uh, big muscle movement here uh, that happened. And, uh, and I, think, I think all of us probably can tip our hat to the importance of, of what, ha- what happened and what this, is, what this is intended to do. And I think we also can say, we'll see where this goes and what this leads to over a number of years. Uh, I mean, it's more than just subs, uh, as Patrick said. It's more than just nuclear propulsion. Propulsion is also high tech. And I mean, it's the beginning of a very, very big muscle movement, a very important one. And so I don't think anyone is throwing necessarily, not many people are throwing rocks at the, at the bigger picture here, of what, what the administration was trying to do and what it sounds like kind of fell in their lap back in March, April, when supposedly the... Uh, the Australians went to the Brits and then the Brits brought the Australians to the US and they, they put together what they've announced. And I guess they're still trying to put together exactly what this is. But in a sense, it, it, it kind of fell on our lap as a wonderful um, uh, policy initiative uh, that, that, uh, that we're now gonna take advantage of and try to build into something big. But, but, but the problem, and, and, and you laid this out well, uh, Dove, is, is how we go about implementing this. Um, Vago, Vago, you made that point. And Dove, earlier, you, as we were talking, you, we, we were talking about, um, you know, how did it, uh, how did this happen, this, uh, this kind of ham-fisted uh, implementation? Um, and part of it is, I think, they didn't probably have a lot of uh, policy options that weren't awkward in terms of how do you announce this? How do you roll this out? How do you deal with the, the French on this? Uh, so I don't, I don't uh, underplay how hard it was as a policy rollout uh, to, to do it, but, um, but it really ended up worse than, than it had to be, to my mind. I think we have to keep in mind that in France right now, it's, Macron is up for re-election. So this is this 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 uh, and it's not just the loss of the business, but this humiliation. Frankly, the French right. hate to be humiliated more than anything else. They've been humiliated by this, and uh, and this, of course, plays into French politics. And Macron and a lot of the response has been uh, to try to do something about how it looks politically. I will say that I have been told by administration officials there were a lot of consultations or discussions with the French in the run up to this. I I'm not so sure how deep the U.S or UK went into the discussion with the French on, on the bigger package, but there, but this wasn't necessarily a surprise um, to, the, to the French. I think the problem, the bigger problem here is that there was, this was a surprise to all of us uh, and to our allies in Europe. And I think, I think that's the rub uh, of Vago is that, um, you know, no one likes surprises uh, and, and everyone wants the US to be predictable and everyone wants the US to be seen as consulting and uh, and predictable, and I think what's happened is everyone woke up and and there was this huge important strategic muscle movement dropped on everyone, and so everyone's a bit stunned by it, and they're a little bit worried that here's the U.S. is once again being unpredictable, uh, and they were used to that. I mean, they saw that with Trump, and now they're seeing this unpredictability, and it's causing them to say, what what you know, what is this? 
Uh, and I think while France certainly has supporters, but also people who don't necessarily like them in Europe, I think generally there's some sympathy for the for the French situation in this too, which we shouldn't dwell on too much. That's a story in and of itself. But I think more broadly in Europe and at NATO with the SecGen, they're going, wow, this is interesting. <laughs> this is great. How come we at least didn't get a whiff of this? Uh, what, where is the U.S. going with this? And I think with the U.K. also marching around and saying, uh, look, what, look what we are part of. This is great. Global Britain is back. That's irritating to the Europeans, too. They're like, oh, my God. Right. Uh, so I, I think we've, 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 by implementing something that is important, we've got some collateral damage with the French, who, by the way, are the only ally that can really have an impact in the Indo-Pacific with us. You know, we've alienated them now, but 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 put that aside, uh, I think the broader impact in Europe and in NATO is they're trying to sort this out and trying to figure out, so where's this going? And is this an exclusive club? Is this a Five Eyes-like club where US, right. UK, Australia are doing these things? Um, and so are, you know, so you guys, you're, you're gonna, you're a coalition, the willing, if you will, you're marching off and doing this. I, so do we just dust our hands off here in Europe and say, I guess we don't play or can we play or do we want to play or should we play? And this is another point too, um, is that um, there's going to be some reluctance in some European capitals, unlike in the past, where nations usually wanted to join in a U.S.-led coalition of the willing because they wanted to be seen as matter, mattering. They, they don't want to be left out. This is a prestigious thing. They want to be on the team. I'm starting to think that there's going to be some reluctance to quickly jump on board something like this, even if they're given the opportunity to do it, right. um, because they're going to say, uh, gosh, this is another surprise. Uh, you know, I've been burned now so much. I'm not so sure. Right. I'm going to just blindly well, follow the U.S., uh, you know, going forward. The, so, the, 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 one, one thing which I do think is interesting, and, and not to interrupt, but I mean, one thing which I do think is interesting is the administration doesn't think it's done anything wrong. It's a little difficult to figure out, well, did they have conversations or not? Because when you talk to some folks, they say, you know, it was up to the Australians to tell the French that their contract was canceled. Well, yeah, I, right. and, you know, I've, I've heard that, too. And, and it sounds like at least initially the White House is trying to pin things on the Australians, which is like, guys, that looks bad. But but again, you know, I think I think what this really shows us is that. Um, um, they just, for whatever reason, in the White House, and a lot of it, I think, is they don't have, they still don't have their team together, but it's causing people to question uh, that, uh, you know, maybe when it comes to Europe, th that's just a second thought uh, as they go about doing policymaking. It's, it's right. they're, they're, they're like, look, we're good. This is a great opportunity. China is where our focus is going to be. That's where we're going. Uh, damn the torpedoes, full steam ahead. And if someone had raised their hand and said, yeah, but let's do this in a way that brings the Europeans along, maybe we can make the French part. Doing something to ameliorate the optics right. of this, uh, they were probably shooed away and said, uh, get out of here. You know, Europe, who cares? Uh, they're going to be with us one way or another. They have no choice. They're dependent on us. They're, they'll come along. For God's sake, let's move ahead on this. But there was also, by the way, a pretty excessive worry about leaks. So even if yeah, it was absolutely. held so tightly at this higher level that um, the no one was really prepared, from what I can tell, no one was really prepared to handle uh, the phone calls the next day. I mean, if you were the DASD in Europe or the EUR person at state, you were as surprised in a lot of ways as everybody else was. So, so again, and uh, uh, Vago, going back to a lot of what you've said, 
it's the execution was just, it wasn't done in a manner that you would expect from a group that's as, as experienced uh, as this group seems to be. And so the, the broader point, and I'll end it here, is that yes, uh, you can point your finger at Australia. Yes, you can point your finger about not having your ambassadors in place in Europe and at NATO and not having the staff there. And you know, you can, you, you can, you can build a case uh, that tries to excuse yourself but I think, um, frankly, this uh, makes me question where the administration is in terms of its policy towards Europe. There's a lot of great rhetoric out there and some wonderful communiques and this type of thing. Right. But boy, uh, we, we need to see the walk and more than more than just the talk. Um, I, I just want to say, uh, uh, Dove, you've been very patient. I mean, the one thing I just want to add is senior Royal Navy leaders over the course of very many years would sort of drop, you know, the, the right solution for the Australians would be an astute uh, and, you know, but they weren't going to go nuclear. And now all of a sudden, you know, all of that stuff over the years uh, did did come together. Right. I mean, it was a confluence of Australian frustration with the French that matched their worries about the Chinese helping them overcome this. And obviously there has to be a referendum in, in Australia. Right. I mean, we can't minimize, minimize that. Dove. Um, you've seen this before. You were at the White House. Uh, excuse me. You were in the Pentagon, certainly during 2003. Uh, many in France are, are saying that this rupture is equal to uh, the Iraq war rupture. Uh, it's 90 billion Australian dollars. That's that's a lot of 66 billion to 40 billion American dollars, depending on how you value the deal for France. That, that's a lot of money for anybody, particularly uh, for France uh, in, in its uh, in its shipbuilding uh, sector. The more frustrating for the French is we were doing something oddball to satisfy the customer's needs and ended up getting crosswise with them. Uh, ultimately, at what point is France's tirade counterproductive? Uh, because it's not going to change anything, even if it telegraphs how mad uh, Paris is. Um, and what has to happen next? And what is the lesson the administration has to draw to make sure that it gets this right? Because it's already creating a narrative that these guys are as bad as the Trump guys in a different way. And that can't possibly be a good thing when we want our allies and partners together to focus on the Pacific. I mean, we even blew the sails off of Joseph Burrell's, um, hey, here's our Asia Pacific plan, right? Nobody paid attention to that. Everybody was pissed off about an Australian subdeal. Well, let's begin with why this is an important deal. Um, when I was undersecretary, I would tell the press, um, I was very open about it, that the only allies we could count on 100% of the time, not 90, not 80, not 70, but 100% of the time were the Brits and the Aussies. They're the only allies that have fought alongside us for a long, long time in every war. And certainly in Vietnam, uh, the British official position was that they were against us. And uh, they actually did quite a bit to help us. And the Aussies, of course, uh, despite internal protest, uh, fought and died alongside us. So that's number one. Number two is, if you're talking about deterring China, and this is why the Chinese are going nuts, everybody knows that what really scares the Chinese is our submarine force. Because we can launch missiles that can totally eviscerate their fleet. And we can also launch missiles that could take out their missile launchers. Maybe not all of them, but enough of them. And of course, we could target other things. The submarines are the biggest threat to China. And so that's why the Chinese are screaming. Now, as for the French, look, uh, yeah, you're right. I was there in, in 03. Uh, the French 
and we had a major spat over this. And of course, everybody knows that Paul Wolfowitz decided he wouldn't let the French subcontract for any business out in Iraq or Afghanistan. Well, Iraq, really, not Afghanistan. And, and that's maybe a point, too. They never walked away from us in Afghanistan. And, you know, uh, they didn't pull out of NATO as the Gaul did. They made a lot of noise. They were a pain in the ass. Um, it would have been most helpful if they would have participated the way the Brits did. But they didn't. We got over it. They got over it. They'll get over this one, too. Um, as for the rest of Europe and, and Britain in that sense, look, the Brits are reaching out all over the place with regard to NATO. They've reached out to the Quad. They've reached out to join what now is the CTPC, whatever it is that the Chinese added to replace the TTP. They want to play in Asia in a very big way, and now they will. Um, and so for them, it's critically important. As for the Europeans, the French are going to play in Asia for the same reason they continue to play in Afghanistan. It's in their interest. As for the rest of Europe, well, quite frankly, what were we supposed to do? Make an announcement to the EU that we were having uh, secret discussions? Uh, of course not. And oh, by the way, we don't know to what extent the EU really is going to walk away from China economically. So uh, I'm not too uptight about what we did regarding the EU. We need to know more about the EU. We need to talk to them more. We don't really talk to them enough in the, in the defense world. Right. We say we do, but we don't. We should. But for the time being, uh, I don't think that's a, a major issue as well. Ultimately, this is a very, very good deal for us. Uh, everybody knows there's five eyes. Uh, this is three of the five. And uh, it, it really sends a message to China. Uh, now, the real problem, as I see it, is that once again, the administration comes across looking incompetent. Uh, it didn't handle the, the withdrawal from Afghanistan as well as it could. Uh, you can put any adjective you want, anything from, well, it could have been better to what a mess. Uh, there's a long in, range. In fairness, though, Zal, Zal Khalilazad, you and I have been talking about this, by the way, offline for a while. Zal Khalilazad <laughs> came out this week and said, yeah. well, we had a deal with the Taliban that Ghani was supposed to stay and do a provisional government and not come into Kabul, except the only fly in that ointment was Ghani fled and news reports suggest that he had the clothes on his back, but an access to a bank account with $190 million. Well, look, it's very easy to blame Ghani. Uh, and certainly he shouldn't have run away. That's not how. And that's what caused the entire collapse at the end of the but finish that's, line. But right? That's, I mean, not, that's nonsense. I mean, after all said and done, the, 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 Taliban was beating up on the Afghan national forces to the last minute. Um, and if we and we knew what Ghani was like months before, uh, it does years excuse, before years. before. Yeah, absolutely. It doesn't excuse the inability to plan properly to get our people out, to get the Afghans out. It was a mess. And again, you, it depends. If you're a Democrat, you probably say we could have done it better. If you're a Republican, you'll say this was totally chaotic. And the same thing here. The Democrats are going to say, yeah, well, we could have done it better. And the Republicans are going to say, what have you been doing? And I think the Europeans will align more, much as they might hate it, with the Republican point of view, right. which is to say, God almighty, you did it again. You guys cannot shoot straight. You may have the right idea. You're not Trump. You're not trying to undermine us. But you do anyway. That, I think, is the biggest problem we've got. And, and, and how do we fix that, Dove? What does this administration have to do? Because there doesn't seem to be a recognition that 
hey, uh, yeah, we could have done this better, right? I mean, I think that that's what people, and I understand in the modern media environment that you don't want to admit having made a mistake, right? Uh, and But ultimately, you have to learn from mistakes uh, and administrations overcome early fumbles uh, to set a track record of success. They're trying to do the right kinds of things. What are the things they have to do to, to change? And then I want to bring it back to Patrick and, 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 and Jim, but I want to get your sense on this as a, you know, well, and, and do we offer France uh, a task force, right? I mean, I'm, I'm proposing a Western Pacific task force, have the French lead it uh, south of the Philippines uh, in their patch, um, move one of their big deck amphibs, the Mistral class, extraordinarily capable, couple of ships in a nuclear submarine. And that could be a great task force around everybody can, that folks can coalesce around and is the kind of prestigious mission, for example, the French would like. That's a more narrow-minded solution. But more broadly, what's the lesson they have to derive from this uh, series well, of setbacks? The first thing they've got to do, I think, uh, is they're not going to publicly apologize. You're right but they need to privately apologize. And if it leaks out, it leaks out, but they need to do that. It's very, very important. You got to stroke people, whether you're stroking people on Capitol Hill or stroking your allies. If you dump all over them, they're going to resent you and they will, and they will remember. We tend to forget, they will remember. That's number one. Number two is whether it's a task force or whether it's looking the other way when the French want to make a sale and they're competing with us. That's another way to deal with it. Um, there are a number of ways, I think, one thing Biden could do is invite Macron to the White House and simply say, hey, look, we've patched this up. And he speaks privately to Macron. Macron is running for election, uh, as you just heard. Um, what, you know, Macron could then come back to France and say, look, I had a head to head with Biden. This man is not Trump. Uh, he does respect me. He does respect France. Um, and uh, we're going to try to take it from here, as we did after 2003. That's another way we can do it. There are a number of ways we can do it. The one thing we shouldn't do is, is continue on this road of saying it's everybody else's fault except ours. It just doesn't work. People don't sit for it. And they're hedging against us and they'll just continue to hedge against us unless we do something different. Um, uh, we have a couple of minutes left and I uh, think we have to talk about the Millie matter, but I also, uh, Patrick, want to come back to you, right? Uh, for, first, uh, go to you or to Jim to see whether or not you guys want to add any other uh, points before we move on to this. And we we go uh, to our North Korean friends who've been kind of quiet until this week where they made a lot of noise. Uh, Patrick, why don't you start us off and Jim, uh, finish us off on any uh, Australian submarine or U.S. policymaking criticism. Uh, Patrick, I'm not trying to be too harsh. A lot of very, very thoughtful people have been involved in this. Uh, Kurt Campbell. Uh, your your good friend uh, and for uh, uh, someone for whom I have an enormous amount of respect was involved in this, obviously, uh, as well. But, you know, sort of give us any wrap up thoughts before we move to Korea. Go ahead. It's tough to implement strategy, um, and it's a lot easier to criticize it from outside. But uh, clearly, execution has been an issue here. Um, the important thing, though, is getting the big strategy right, the big muscle moves right. And I think I think there uh, we, we see some real opportunity here for, for the United States. Uh, and that's the important thing from my perspective. On the economic and trade front, because, you know, uh, Dove mentioned the importance of the CPTPP, the Comprehensive and Progressive Trans-Pacific Partnership, the 11 countries that are now being led by Japan, mostly for this trade agreement, China has formally asked to join, but it has to be unanimous. And Australia has already indicated they're not going to accept 
China's bid while they're uh, flouting uh, trade rules and sanctioning Australia and otherwise being hostile. Um, but the United States, meanwhile, it's a reminder, has to still fix its trade and economic policies uh, toward this Indo-Pacific. And it's going to have to do that more than one or two countries at a time. So that's an interesting uh, dilemma that the administration is going to have to face over the next couple of years. I've been meaning to ask this uh, briefly. How is Beijing going to punish Australia? Because Australia made this decision knowing it was going to incur Beijing's wrath. And Beijing has already been punishing Australia very badly. Uh, and the Australian economy is very dependent on China. Um, ultimately, what's Beijing going to do? Because it can't abide this, right? Because the United States could do this with Japan. The United States could do this with South Korea. The United States could also do this with Taiwan if it wanted to. As, as Dove had alluded, um, submarines are a neuralgic issue for the Chinese because they truly can impede this open running room that China was hoping to have toward the China dream in the mid-century um, and clearing out the Indo-Pacific. Um, this really stands in the way. So now Australia is front and center, one of the major military targets, um, and not just a pressure point, not just a, a sanction, a country to be sanctioned uh, and boycotted uh, and psychologically harassed. But now Australia will be uh, in the bullseye, along with the United States, along with Japan, uh, and along with the UK now, to uh, as, as hostile um, countries for China. And who knows what that means? Obviously, we saw China immediately talk about joining the trade pact that could put the United States uh, outside of any major multilateral trade deal in the region and could put China inside both the RCEP, uh, which they want to now start on in January. That's a 15 country uh, trade pact, uh, and, and as well as the, uh, the new Trans-Pacific Partnership. But there, they're not likely to get accepted anytime soon. They're going to have to punish them in, in military ways too. So we're going to see targeting. We're going to see pressure. Australia is uh, riven with its own domestic politics, and we have a conservative government in Prime Minister Morrison. Um, that's not always going to be the case, and uh, China is going to be playing uh, into the internal politics uh, of Australia, I suspect, in, in the coming months and years. Dove, um, let me just jump to you briefly. Does this, there are some people who are comparing this uh, to uh, the 1938, uh, to, you know, Two Navies uh, Act, and that that you know, is that does this trigger China to move faster? I don't really buy that because we're basically talking about two additional two uh, nuclear attack submarines region, re regionally, right? Once you even execute this, or maybe three uh, that'll be uh, underway at any given time. Obviously, important, and each one of these submarines can you know have a disproportionate multiplier effect. But it doesn't seem that in and of itself, that would be a reason for China to accelerate, you know, an attack on Taiwan, for example. But I mean, you know, how do you respond to those who say that? Well, uh, if you're talking about accelerating their production, of course, they're going full speed. So I don't think that's an issue in terms of an attack on Taiwan. The fact of the matter is that right now they know that we're still stronger than they are and uh, that it would be very, very high risk. Uh, and uh, I know that Xi Jinping wants to do it, but he also wants to be president for life. So he's got some time. And, and I haven't seen any real estimates that uh, predict that there's a problem in less than six or seven years. And it's not clear to me that there would be a problem even then. Uh, it's a lot tougher for them to take Taiwan than people think. Um, it's not easy for us to protect it. It's their backyard. We know that. But nevertheless, they, we do have a pretty strong deterrent. 
And we are making assumptions about their abilities. Uh, and let's face it, the last war these guys fought was a long, long time ago, 1979, against Vietnam, and they got a bloody nose. The last right. war the United States fought ended in August. We have veterans. We have professionals. We have people who know how to fight wars. Maybe we don't do as well as we can against Taliban's, but we sure as hell know how to fight wars. They have not fought one. Would they take the risk? I wouldn't bet the family farm on China right now. Um, let me uh, quickly, uh, Jim, is there anything you want to add uh, briefly? Because I've got to get uh, Patrick's take on North Korea and then everybody's take on the Millie uh, situation really quickly. It just, just briefly, I think for the administration, as far as what can they do now, I think they've got to lift their sights higher out of the nuts and bolts of the of the Australians and, and finger pointing and look at the importance of what we've all said this morning. And that is uh, the importance of this strategic muscle move, what we're doing there. It's important for Europe and NATO too. Uh, we've got to have that be our narrative. And I think we need to get a, a, um, a roadshow of some type going to Europe uh, at, a, at a senior level and, and, and talking about that and laying out how, how this is not just a, a three-person club doing this, but all of us, this is the first move, but there's room for everyone and to be associated in some ways with this. Um, and I think we need to go and explain this, whether it's at NATO headquarters, some of the major capitals, and uh, we've got to get the administration's people in place. We've got to get Karen Domfried at EUR. We've got to get Julie Smith at NATO. We've got to get ambassadors out there to be, you know, uh, to be talking about this, to be filling this thing out. And we got to get out of the mud wrestling here about who who was supposed to call the French, you know. Right. Um, yeah, but it's it's still important, right? I mean, at the end of the day. We always, uh, these administrations always run afoul of the little but very important things, the stroking, the engaging, right. the phone call before something happens. And it's, it's very easy, easy to do. And one uh, side, I'm not saying that you ever had to suffer from this, uh, Jim, right? But every once in a while, I know in the Obama administration, somebody somewhere would do something and you'd be like, couldn't you guys just let me know we were going to do that so I could make a phone call somewhere? Well, well, and you know, and it's, and it's every, I mean, I've worked there since the early 80s in the Pentagon. I saw this Republican and Democrat. So it's, right. it's, it's an endemic problem, but it just, it's an, it's, it, this team is so experienced. They shouldn't be messing up on that kind of thing. Um, Patrick, uh, let me go to you really quick. Uh, give us uh, what the North Koreans are doing, whether we should be worried or any more worried than otherwise, or rather put it more differently. What is it they want to accomplish this time? Because they have a tendency of throwing the toys out of the pram when they want something. Uh, and now we have a slimmer trimmer, uh, King Jong-un, uh, to, to deal with who, who uh, touches children tenderly and accepts their flowers instead of sending their parents. Well, yeah, while simultaneously sending their parents to concentration camps. Go ahead. Well, Bago, I think what we saw this last week is the opening salvo in a new open military modernization campaign. Um, that's nothing new for North Korea, but we haven't seen this kind of openness uh, in terms of weapons testing really since 2017 when Pyongyang was testing missiles every month uh, and had conducted three nuclear tests within the span of 22 months. So we saw two long-range land attack cruise missiles that are presumed to be nuclear capable, although fashioning a nuclear warhead on a smaller system like a cruise missile is yet to be accomplished as far as we know by North Korea. Um, they also did another first, which was a rail-mounted ballistic missile shot. Um, so clearly North Korea wants uh, attention, 
Um, clearly, they want to show that they can also evade the coming layered missile defense systems in the region, uh, and they want more survivable systems. At the same time, you've got South Korea doubling down on their own weapon systems ever since the United right. States and South Korea agreed to terminate the, the ballistic missile guidelines, and they became the eighth country in the, in the world to actually launch uh, test an operational SLBM uh, aboard a new class of submarine next year uh, to be deployed. So um, they also tested an air-to-ground cruise missile. So the arms capabilities in the region, uh, in, intended to be fired in the region, are growing. And they're not U.S. systems. These are indigenous systems. So this, this is a, a, an interesting, important development uh, to be watched closely. There's no sign that diplomacy is going to slow this down anytime soon right now. Um, let me, uh, Dove, I know you've got a minute with us. Um, I wanted us to spend more time talking about the Millie uh, situation, but why don't you give us the last word and then we can schedule a program and maybe have a deeper dive on this. Go ahead. Well, I, you know, I, I think, uh, as you were saying, actually, before we went on, on uh, recording, um, this falls somewhere in between him being a total traitor and him being a total patriot. Um, it's clear that Esper had given, when Esper, Mark Esper was Secretary of Defense, he'd given him guidance. Um, it was clear that uh, the United States defense establishment, beginning with the Secretary of Defense, did not want to create a situation where we would get into an inadvertent war with China. So in that respect, I think Milley was simply following Esper's lead. The trouble is, of course, there was a different Secretary of Defense uh, at the time, um, and Milley knew very well that the new Secretary of Defense might not go along with this. Um, so uh, Milley wasn't exactly uh, conducting a seven days in May coup by himself. He may have overstepped it by saying, we're gonna give you warning, um, and uh, by the way, if people in Congress are talking about, hey, you, you shouldn't be able to launch anything nuclear without congressional approval, by which time we could be totally decimated. Um, but he may have gone a little bit too far. Uh, ultimately, though, I think he was within uh, both boundaries on the football field. He, he just may have overthrown the pass a little. I just want to commend uh, to our audience to check out Dove's piece in The Hill. The weapons American forces left behind may not help the Taliban much. Uh, so just wanted to be sure that everybody checks that out as well. Everybody, thanks so very much for joining us. Really appreciate a terrific conversation as, as always. Uh, already looking forward to having you guys back on. Hope everybody has uh, a great uh, weekend uh, and a great week and uh, talk to you next week. Thanks again. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report and check us out on LinkedIn and stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship and we'll see you again tomorrow.